my name is Dr. Anne, and this is Safe Space, a live forum for the courageous discussion of subjects that are hard to talk about. My guest tonight is Patrice Lockhart, and we're going to be talking about the psychiatric treatment of eating disorders. Tonight is the first in an ongoing series on food and body image. Patrice Lockhart is a psychiatrist right here in Portland, Maine. She's the medical director of the New England Eating Disorders Program at Mercy Hospital. She also has a private practice in Gorham, and I recently learned she was a professional harpist before that. Welcome to Safe Space. Thank you. Um, I'd like to start out by asking you how you got involved in the treatment of eating disorders. What was it that drew you to it? Um, my my uh, textbook was one particular patient that I worked with for four years during my residency training. Um who had several uh, facets of eating disorder behaviors and had spent some time in treatment um, at the program that I am now in charge of. So I was curious about her treatment there. And I learned so much from her and uh, just was fascinated with the aspect of life that is, I, I thought eating disorder treatment would be fairly limiting or narrow and found it to be uh, every bit of life. So when uh, the position opened up, they actually came and looked for me, and I was looking at them very positively. It was a wonderful team to work with and uh, turned out to be a great fit. So That's so I, great. So when you say she was your textbook and that you learned so much from her, what did she teach you about eating disorders and what's important? Uh, this patient taught me to listen and to be flexible and to mostly be consistent with her, that she and others needed to count on the same things uh, time and again. Whether they were able, able to be consistent themselves was another matter, but to have a level of trust that things were really going to be present when they needed them was uh, the primary focus. And just to flesh that out so I really understand you, um, being consistent like, you know, by showing up on time, do you mean, or with... A, with uh, for you... starters, I guess showing up on time, although <laughs> that's not my strong suit okay. necessarily. I tend to get involved in things and spend uh, you know time finishing up and then not always starting things on time. I think just what to expect as a person in terms of relationships and um, having actions and words match so that this patient knew what to count on from me and trusted that I was willing to uh, work with her family members, her other uh, treatment providers in providing a consistent message and a consistent background for her to be safe. Uh -huh. So she trusted you? Um, yes, ultimately, and uh, actually then began to trust herself and her own instincts. So it was a really wonderful journey and has continued to be that way with many, many other patients. Sounds wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to, I want to, you know, switch now to a little bit, just talking about eating disorders themselves. I think it's almost impossible to grow up as a woman in our culture and not have some kind of degree of self-consciousness mm -hmm. about body. And I'm curious, how would you define when you know, so there's a spectrum, in other words, of difficulty around bodies and food. How would you define when something becomes a real eating disorder? You know, if, if I was a family member who loved someone and I was worried, what are the markers that tell you this has really become something 
you know, that's serious, that needs, that needs care, that needs treatment? Well, you know, there are very specific criteria in that fancy book that we have called the DSM, the Diagnostic and Manual of, you know, illnesses as they're characterized. Um, But I think I look at eating disorders and disordered eating as whenever it's affecting parts of your life in ways that don't work anymore. So um, I think it it can it can be very objective in terms of diagnosing, but it also needs to be subjective in terms of how it affects a person's life. It may affect a marriage, it may affect schoolwork, it may affect how you know uh, involved a child is with a family, or whether they're doing things that they enjoy anymore, or they are really so focused on their relationship with either food or exercise, even or laxatives and diuretics, um, and. Um, I think people should worry. I trust a family member more than anybody. I think if a mother or a father comes to me and says, I'm worried, that's the biggest red flag you can have as a, as a treater or as a teacher or a counselor or anyone that's, you know, a coach. But if you've got somebody saying, I'm worried, that's probably a pretty good instinct from someone who knows this person pretty well. Trust your worry. Yep. Trust your worry. I've had more patients say, oh, I wish I'd brought my kid in sooner. Because yeah. they thought, oh, I don't want to rock the boat with my worry. But usually those instincts are well-founded. So um, if just, just to follow this analogy a little further, this example, so say this person's worried and there's maybe a family member, let's say a teenage girl for the sake of it. Um, you know, I can imagine that part of the hesitation to bring it up with them is not wanting to shame them or pathologize them. And... Um, I'm I'm curious how you, you know, like in the treatment of something like alcohol problems, there's such a focus in AA anyway on getting people to admit they're an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. In with an eating disorder, how important is it to have the person themselves admit that they have a real problem? Is that part of the focus of initial treatment? I think it's really important because it's the first step in separating the person from the illness. Um, eating disorders become so insidious and become very close to a person. And also in their secrecy, it's kind of like hiding a bad boyfriend. You know, it may be, it may give you some gains that you really don't want to let go of as you know that it's really bad for you. So keeping that quiet um, allows it to become much more ingrained in a part of a person identifying it as a set of symptoms that are separate from the the core of the human. Um, a lot of times I like to reintroduce relationships with people to take the place of the relationship with the eating disorder. And that requires communication and honesty and directness and even acknowledging a situation where you're really having a hard time. You can't, you can't do anything about something you don't identify. Right. And when you say, you know, the things that might make it hard for a person to identify they have a problem, you said something like hiding a bad boyfriend because, you know, he still gives you, you get something good out of it, even though it's Mm -hmm. hurting you. Do you think that's part of the reason why it's hard to acknowledge a problem is because you're afraid of losing what the seeming benefits are? I do. And I think it's complicated. It's not a straightforward path as all relationships are complicated. Um, So it requires a a multi... um, dimensional approach for really readiness to look at something that's harmful to you, um, 
allowing others to help is a really big piece. Self-examination and self-honesty. Uh, you know, humans, we were born with these, this gift of self-deceit. Sometimes we just want something to be true so badly that we will believe it. And that protects us from other dangerous things. But really learning how to be honest in terms of safety is learning how to tolerate distress as well. So it's a really important set of skills to learn. And I think it's a developmental set of skills. Um, you know, food is just fuel as well as fun and joy and, you know, pleasurable conversation and joining folks around a table and experiencing sensory um, wonderfulness. Um, when it gets taken out of that realm and um, made into a bad thing, that's a really, um, it's an alarming process. And when a person becomes his or her own worst enemy, really they need a lot of help to get out of that. It's not something that can really be conquered alone very often. So when we talk about it as a dangerous process, I wonder if we could just spend a little time talking about the actual medical consequences. Mm -hmm. And I guess first let's focus on anorexia. So the person becomes mm -hmm. dangerously thin. Mm -hmm. What is the actual danger there? What, what are the medical consequences of that? Boy, malnutrition affects every organ system. Uh, the, the big ones that we focus on that are the hardest hit would be the heart and the bones and the brain. Okay. So if you look at a person who's 20% below their healthy body weight, their brain is also missing 20% of its capacity. So we see, you know, you may have someone who does great in school, who's getting all A's or about to finish a master's degree, but they can't problem solve very well. They can't focus on more than one thing at a time, and their thinking becomes very rigid. Pure malnutrition doesn't even have to be an eating disorder diagnosis for malnutrition to have that much of an impact. It also is muscle wasting when uh, when weight is low. The heart is the the strong arm muscle of the of the body and the most important pump. So if you have muscle wasting wasting in your legs and arms, you're going to have it in your heart as well. Uh, bones also, especially uh, teenage bones and young women's bones who don't have enough body mass or enough body composition uh, in the appropriate uh, ratios, bones won't grow. And you can't replace that in any form except with nutrition. There have been all sorts of studies now that are finally showing the results of oral uh, estrogen replacement doesn't, doesn't protect bones. It may produce menstrual periods, but it won't protect the bone growth. So... Uh, I really look at teenagers as such a huge um, area of focus. I don't want them to be in their disordered uh, patterns for any, you know, a minute longer than they have to be because they're not going to get that bone growth back and it will really cripple them for life. And I understand when you talk about muscle wasting in the heart, I understand also you can have very dangerous heart rhythms. I wonder if you yep. could say a little yes. about that. Yes, so, I mean, the heart. When the muscle's not pumping appropriately, there are also enzymes. This would, if you want to differentiate for a patient who is bulimic, uh, purging by vomiting or using other substances, um, electrolytes get uh, distorted when um, those electrolytes are lost in the vomiting, and it's also in terms of the substances used. So the cardiac function, it's like uh, short-circuiting your, your uh, circuit board here in the radio station. 
something may just stop at the wrong time and could cause, you know, all sorts of dangerous things, including a heart attack and death. This is WMPG. My name is Dr. Ann, and I'm talking to Patrice Lockhart about uh, the psychiatric treatment of eating disorders. So here you are, you're working with these illnesses that can, in fact, have very significant life-altering um, consequences mm-hmm. for someone. What are the biggest challenges for you in your work? I think for me personally, it's allowing people who are in danger to continue to make decisions for themselves. It's um, it's it's my favorite part of the work and the most challenging in that I have utmost respect for every single patient and I have no respect for these illnesses. So when a patient comes in practically glued to an illness, it's really takes some finesse and timing to knock the illness out of the way without hurting the patient. So I am constantly thinking about my own level of worry, my own level of patience, how to connect with a person not through their illness so that I get to establish a relationship with the the human and not with the dangerous side. So I'm thinking about this constantly. And it's it's an honor to do that, to have someone come, whether they know they're scared or not, something in them has allowed them to be present and, present and learn more about this illness and hopefully stay in treatment long enough to get some help. So interesting, as I get the sense as I'm listening to you that you really have this very clear differentiation between the person and their illness, and you're interested in having that separate, that space get wider mm-hmm. and wider and wider and and tell me more really what you mean by that. Like, what does that look like as a person? They start to see this illness as not me. Is mm-hmm. that what you mean? Like, yes. they're not identified with it anymore. Yes. And that comes with behavioral change first. And say, say what you mean. It doesn't come with feeling like doing something different or really getting the, you know, a lot of patients come in and say, I just want to like my body again, or I just want to feel good about eating. And I have to help them accept the fact that that's going to come a little bit later in the process. The first stage is going to be, we're going to change this pattern that you have in your life so that you're no longer struggling with how many calories to have for breakfast. We're just going to establish a plan that's safe for you and change this behavior. And eventually, if you do it consistently enough, you're definitely going to feel better and have some motivation to look at some other ways to really take charge of an illness that's, you know, most patients gravitate toward these illnesses because they want to have a sense of control, perhaps. And it's really a flip. Um, When the illness is in charge of the person, you know, it's hard to see that initially. How out of control they've become. Yeah. All the while longing for more control. Yes. Control and companionship and and uh, things that that they can share with other people rather than be different. Yeah. You know, when you say the difficulty of allowing someone to keep doing something, you know, it's sort of not wanting to take control of them, essentially, mm-hmm. or sort of the, the difficulty of it, where I relate to you is around, you know, if I have a someone who's very suicidal and, you know, not wanting to just like throw them into the hospital, Mm -hmm. but really trusting them and how, and that knowing that trusting them is actually part of their recovery. It is. But it's very difficult. 
for the clinician. It is very difficult. And I've found the one thing that has made the biggest impact is including family members in treatment. How do you mean? Um, if a patient, well, a patient that's a teenager who has parents who care about them uh, has such a greater chance for full recovery than someone who tries to tackle this alone. So with adolescence, I really first empower the parents to be parents. And what and how? What, what does that mean? Um, by letting them know that the patient who's malnourished or who's doing things to themselves that are dangerous is maybe very mature on some levels, but very immature on some others. And a parent wouldn't let a kid drive the car when they're three years old or even go out of the driveway without the car seat in. So that's the level of parenting that they have to go to with an eating disorder. They are going to prepare the meals. They're going to be with their child 100% of the time. They're going to supervise them until they demonstrate readiness to have more independence. And it's the, it's the person with the illness that demonstrates that readiness by complying with a plan and succeeding in a very narrow framework and then, it, then moving forward. I can imagine for some families, it's a very challenging thing to do that because, you know, some of the literature on eating disorders suggests, you know, it has a very mother blaming focus, yep. like the mother is too intrusive or too controlling. Mm -hmm. And this is her daughter's attempt to assert her independence. So then if, if actually what the mother needs to do to help the daughter is to become more authoritative. Mm -hmm. I can, Temporarily. Yeah, I can see that that's challenging. It's challenging and freeing once uh, folks realize that they just have to trust that pattern of what they know to do as parents and not let go to, you know, if you let an eating disorder become the parent, that, that child is not asserting their independence either. So it's really just returning the level of uh, balance in the family. Are there things that you teach uh, parents or families that are really unhelpful to someone struggling with an eating disorder? To ask that question, I didn't understand Well, I that. think that parents are often afraid of saying the wrong thing uh -huh. or doing the wrong thing. And are there things that you help people learn? Like, yeah, that don't that is unhelpful. Don't uh -huh. do that. Sure. And what would sure. be some of those things? Oh, you know, people put their feet in their mouth all the time. We All, all of us humans do. Um, I guess we teach by example by having a little, a lot of humor in the treatment plan so that, you know, everybody needs to be able to laugh at themselves a little bit and acknowledge that it's not going to go perfectly, but let's try again or let's uh, give a level of forgiveness here and take things less personally in terms of communication. We're really just trying to get along and get this enemy out of our lives. Mm -hmm. So everything else can be, you know, not so uh, militaristic. And folks really tend to come out of this thinking, oh, wow, we never sat down for dinner before as a family. Wow, this is a, this is a good thing uh, mm -hmm. to not have things uh, organized around the illness. Are there specific risk factors that you notice in families that you think make a person more or less likely to develop an eating disorder? Yes and no. I guess I would hesitate to uh, pin them down too tightly because I think anybody could be susceptible given circumstances or stressors in their family. You, you know, you may be born with a temperament that is uh, highly organized. And then you may gravitate towards um, 
sports or um, talents that are highly disciplined or have a body image component. And then you might have your dog die or your parents might split up. And so any of these factors can lead a person to get, you know, or you may have a body habitus that you're always worried about your weight and your family's always been worried about your weight. There are just so many factors that can lead into these things because, you know, while it may have an addictive quality to it, it's not like alcohol or, or another substance. You need food. So you can't just stay away from it. You need to have a developed, healthy relationship with it. Right. I mean, so the goal becomes moderation, not not teetotaling, mm-hmm. which is a whole different thing to yep. work. Yes, it is. Um, so I'm curious, you know, about the role of culture, too. We've talked a little bit about family. Yeah. But, you know, we live in a, an appearance-obsessed culture yes, for women especially, but also increasingly for men. And what do you what do you tell people about that? Or, I mean, do you ever prescribe a total, you know, abstinence from exp- from consuming any media images or how, what's your sense of the power sure. of the media in fostering eating Well, disorders? I think there's an economy of dissatisfaction in this culture. People make money on on humans being unhappy with the way they look or with what they have so that they'll either buy more or choose things that, you know, keep the economy of dissatisfaction running. Once folks start looking at that, they have more power over their choices. And we have a lot of um, patients who really do choose not to subscribe to certain magazines or not to, you know, to at least watch ads with a different focus um, for themselves. Wow, somebody's really exploiting me with that. And I think that kind of education, maybe rather than abstinence, is um, useful because it's going to be everywhere. I think some of the the part that worries me the most is um, children are exposed so much earlier than they used to be. So we are seeing and assessing children as young as five with true eating disorders. Oh, my goodness. And that's that's culture. And that's a brain that's not fully developed to uh, analyze or discern differences yet. So it's much uh, more worrisome. And the treatment, I imagine, would be so different for a five-year-old than a 15-year-old. Yes. Well, yes and no. Uh, It may be a little bit simpler. (laughs) Some kids just come in straight from a health class. uh, You know, a certain temperament in a child will say, oh, I'm afraid to lose weight and go out and start swinging on the swing set for hours. So, you know, it's it's poignant to, to see how this uh, can play into our culture. And again, it's just so much more important for the parents to stay with their instincts and uh, pay attention to what's happening. It sounds, sounds like teaching media literacy in a mm-hmm. way, sort of the ability to really question what you're being fed yes. <laughs> visually yeah. is part of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm also curious, you know, for you... Um, Part of part of I think what's so powerful about eating disorders is that our bodies are public. You know, people can see us. Mm-hmm. They see us. They see what we look like, in in a way that makes it harder to hide mm-hmm. than other struggles. And I was curious, how is it for you to to work there as the as the team doc, um, and have your? I mean, is there a sort of vicarious? Um, is there a way that you can become more self-conscious about your own body when you're there and you're talking to people all day long who are obsessed with bodies and food? I mean, do you find that there's a contagiousness about it that you have to kind of really consciously not get sucked into? Not really. Um, I think I'm aware of my role 
and I have a responsibility to pay attention to my own health habits, whether that's, you know, regularly exercising, eating well. The patients see our team eat together at noontime every day, and we rotate between eating with the patients and then the rest of the staff, you know, having treatment team meetings and things. But I think we, um, not just me, but my whole team are responsible for uh, being confident in what we say and what we do. Um, we all enjoy uh, dressing in our own personal styles. Um, so I think it's uh, it's really just part of mentoring and modeling the way you would for your own kids. Uh, it's I almost even more important for you to be healthy in that context. Yep. But yeah. that's true, you know, as a physician anyway, I think there's a responsibility that goes with that if you're going to practice what you preach. True, although it isn't always so visibly clear to others. No, I think, you know, and in, in medicine we're taught to <laughs> not admit mistakes either. So I really think that's part of... Um, you know, I I really want patients to know that I'm just doing the best I can, too. I'm not full of answers and devoid of questions. So we work out solutions together a lot of times, and, and I think that's part of the modeling process, too. It makes sense because I think about the links between perfectionism and anorexia, mm -hmm. and it feels like health is so much about embracing our flawedness mm -hmm. and yeah. not striving for some ideal. And the bulimic tendencies really are very artistic in a lot of ways and breaking the rules and seeing what else you can do and sometimes how far you can push a limit. So all those uh, all those are usable and important skills if you can channel them in ways that it's aren't It's fascinating to think of those as artistic tendencies. Yeah, I, I like that reframe. <laughs> you said to me earlier when we were preparing for this conversation that you feel like in some ways your own maternal instincts have served you better than anything in how you approach this treatment. And I wondered if you could say more about that. Uh, it, it just feels right. I, I've raised my own children. I've raised students of various uh, disciplines, and I feel like I raise my pa my patients in a lot of ways. Um, and when I think about maternal instincts, I mean, I think in some ways about fierce protection. Yeah. I think about yes. worry. I think about um, nurturing. Yes. Is that what you mean? Yes, all of that uh, together. I'm where the buck stops. The you know patients may come in and they think I'm just the biggest hard nose on the planet, and I am about safety. I will not give up on a patient, and um, that's daunting. I know that at first, but it's my role to hold that boundary for safety and then to allow patients to move forward and take their own lead. And it's, a, it's a, again, a developmental process, I think, that is true of mothering. You know, we, we carry children, we raise them, we protect them, and then we let them go. So that cycle happens constantly, and it's a, it's a wonderful thing. Your patients stay with you about three weeks every day. Um, yeah, usually. Yeah. Three so it's an accelerated process, it, is. it would seem. <laughs> it is. You said something earlier in the show that got my attention, too. You talked about the importance of people listening to themselves mm -hmm. as part of their recovery. And tell me what you mean by that. Well, that's just an ongoing process, I think. You as as you can deceive other people, you can deceive yourself as well. Defense mechanisms come into play in that way. And and I think we all have a sense sometime of what our own voice is. 
And it takes practice to hear yourself and decide, wait, do I really mean that? Or am I just saying that for somebody else? Or how do I know the difference? What is it that really isn't most important to me? And that's an ongoing process that sometimes the eating disorder uh, sidetracks for a while. And it seems to me, I think initially I was thinking you were meaning it in terms of, am I really hungry? Um, well, and hungry can be used in so many different ways. Body, physical cues really can't be trusted with eating disorders. Um, what do you mean? Well, the brain will tell you that you're hungry or not when your body may really be in need of nourishment. So we really have patients ignore those body cues for a while until they get established in a pattern of safety. And then they come back and they're more reliable. But uh, sometimes the the brain and the body trick each other into uh, things that just aren't true. I see. So you try to get someone sort of in a regular, moderate pattern of eating mm -hmm. safe. Yep. And then after that's established... Then you start listening inside to what mm -hmm. your body's needing because yes. in the beginning it's so it's, it's so been out of kilter, so distorted. It really can't be can't be trusted in the initial stages. I know that some people have written about eating disorders and food as a way of sort of stuffing down strong emotion, strong feeling. It's a way of kind of numbing. It almost kind of p puts people out to sleep, like mm -hmm. a form of anesthetic. And do you find that as people start getting better, they do access more emotion? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and some of that's delightful and some of it's terrifying to the individual. Um, sometimes we uh, ask patients to have planned freakouts. They just, <laughs> they can't fathom what what that would entail. But, um, you know, and sometimes it's very mild and sometimes it's... Uh, and they put, you plan it so that they feel safer and a little bit more yeah, control okay, of it. Yeah, let's say 2 o'clock tomorrow, you're just going to have a freakout about the fact that your father always makes you do X, Y, or Z. And it gets kind of fun when you know it's not a dangerous thing to express emotions. But that's just one one side of it. Patrice, we're going to have to stop. But I want to ask you, it's such a pleasure to talk to you about this. I feel like your patients are very lucky to have you. What are some resources that you would recommend for people to read or websites to check out if you want to learn more about eating disorders? Um, there are a couple of good websites. There are a lot of bad ones. Um, Let's I've go with the good ones for now. <laughs> to see. So I would pick, you know, the two that I would, I would steer people towards. One is called somethingfishy.com has all sorts of positive things to do with uh, eating disorder recovery. Another one for parents is uh, Maudsley Parents. And that's M-A-U-D-S-L-E-Y. -E yep. Maudsleyparents.org. Uh -huh. Which has everything from great recipes to uh, other parents' experiences with eating disorders. Um, a good book would be um, How to... Help Your Teenager Beat an Eating Disorder. I think it starts with the help part. Help Your Teenager Beat an Eating Disorder. Uh -huh. Great. Very good for lay people. Um, Patrice Lockhart, I'm going to have to say goodbye. Thank you so much for being my guest. If someone wants more information about the New England Eating Disorder Program at Mercy Hospital, what's the phone number there? 879-3795. And please call with any questions. Thank you very much. Uh, this is Dr. Ann on WMPG. This is Safe Space. I've been talking to Dr. Patrice Lockhart about the psychiatric treatment of eating disorders. I want to thank Jen Hodgson for mixing the sound tonight, for Neil McKenty for being my consultant, and Maurice Lennon for the music. One big announcement for tonight is that we are just launching the Safe Space radio website. 
If you would like to listen to this show, it's going to take a few days to upload it, but there are many shows from the past. If you would like to listen to them or subscribe, I urge you to visit our website at safespaceradio.com. And if you'd like to email me with a request or a suggestion for a future show, please do so at Ann at safespaceradio.com. Coming up next is Allison with Money Talks.